And we are back here at the Finer Arts with myself, Cisco Kids, and the lovely Miss Kitty. So now we're going to start talking about books that were flops. This first example was not necessarily a flop when it first came out, but the actions that came from it are what made it a flop. And that book we're talking about is called The Million Little Pieces by James Frey. Uh, this book was a a person who had addiction. It was, this was their memoir. And it was a huge bestseller. And it was flying off the shelves. Then someone on the internet leaked out that, you know what? This was just a fake book. And it, he was just doing it just to make some money. Because, you know, that kind of stuff is really popular and then pulls on people's heartstrings. And then it got really out of control when Oprah even exposed him on her show. So later on, uh, the publisher even offered a lot of the people back money because they felt cheated. And we never heard from that guy really again. Um, the next part I wanted to talk about are celebrities who you kind of haven't heard from from a while. And they thought they would try their hand at writing something. And, you know, it's kind of easy to get caught up where it's like an actor that you or actress that you love. And then they write something because you haven't heard from them a long time. And you think that they're brilliant and that ends up being crap. The first person I want to talk about is uh, Macaulay Culkin. He wrote a book called Junior. And basically, um, a lot of when it first came out, a lot of people thought, said it was a masterpiece that like wow who knew that he knew how to write but as time went went on and like the book has been out for quite a while now um they said a lot of people started saying that um this just sounds like somebody somebody babbling about nonsense and after reading like a little bit of the book it seems to be uh really an unauthorized version of Macaulay Culkin's life. He's kind of talking about his life growing up, but as somebody else. And I think there's my, it could be the truth, but it's just embellished. And a lot of, um, how you like, not, not uh, inappropriate, but just like immature things like, probably things that he remembers from his childhood or like some of those things. Cause you know, everyone does stupid things and you just remember the dumb parts. You don't really look at it from a mature point of view. And I think that's what a lot of people who are more sophisticated didn't like about the book because it seemed like he was bragging about a lot of the stupid things. Uh, what are your thoughts on our uh, artists or um, actors that decide to, Right. I think that a lot of times what it is is maybe they're falling behind, you know, like out of the public eye. So then they try to do this as a way to come back. Um, funny enough, with books, I feel like that's people's biggest way to try to get some more money. Um, these days, any sort of athlete, anybody that does a YouTube show, anybody, the first thing they do is they release a book. And I think that's because they're trying to keep their fans engaged 
And then it also gives people something to talk about while then maybe they're working on other projects. And the funny part with that is like, yes, Macaulay Culkin is more, is coming out more, is doing more things, but it's nothing to really go bananas for. I mean, yes, he had this book that he wrote a while back ago. Uh, people thought he was going to start wrestling for some reason because he started showing up at shows and because uh, there was another actor who was popular back then um, that I cannot really remember his name. Uh, oh, David Arquette. He's, he's now he's a professional wrestler because of a little shine, a little moment that he had back in the two th early 2000s. So now he's capitalizing on that. People thought Macaulay Culkin was going to do the same thing. Um, there's a lot of talk because, like, for a while he had lived in Europe, and people thought, oh, he's going to become an artist of some sort. No, he just wanted to live there because his buddies were there. And more recently, he was on uh, Joe, Joe Rogan's podcast. Hey, you know, Joe Rogan, he's a really engaging guy. He wanted to know, hey, you know, what are your plans? What are you doing? You know, can we expect you in anything? And Basically, Macaulay was, or Mac, as he prefers to be called, um, basically he's like, oh, well, my royalty checks that I get from Home Alone every year basically are what pay the bills, so I'm not really interested in doing anything else right now. So, I mean, hopefully we could see something, because, you know, there was that time, too, where Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, was in everything for a while when he was younger, then he kind of disappeared, and he came back now older, stronger, wiser, and now he's pumping out all this great stuff. Um, hopefully we could see Macaulay Culkin bust out some type of something creative and new. Um, to me now, he just seems like a hipster more than ever whenever he talks. Um, another book that we're going to talk about, everyone knows this awesome man, is uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. When he uh, released his autobiography called Total Recall, um, funny thing, Kitty was mentioning to me during the break that he was offered a bunch of money to write this book, and they even paid him advance, in advance prior to his release, and it did so bad that his autobiography only sold 50,000 copies. Um, I'm not too sure why that is, because... I mean, anything else that he's done, because let, let's be honest, how many books has he released on just working out alone? And those things just sold like hotcakes. The man writes a quote-unquote inspirational book about his life and doesn't really sell much. I even own this book. I didn't know it did so terribly. but I haven't read it. Maybe it's pretty bad, but it just kind of sits on my shelf. So maybe I'll have to check into that. But uh, let's go into another seg segue and talk about TV flops. Yeah, so there's two that are very kind of interesting. So the first one we'll talk about is My Mother, The Car. And this show came out around the time of I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, um, The Talking Horse, Mr. Ed, um, those types of shows. So it wasn't too strange but the premise of this show was this guy buys an antique car and then it's his mother reincarnated 
in the car. And she talks to him through the car radio. So, yeah, it's a very interesting story premise. But, like I said, it wasn't too unusual when you had talking horses and witches going on. But the interesting thing is Jerry Van Dyke, he's the one that played the lead role for this. And that's Dick Van Dyke's younger brother. Well, he actually turned down Gilligan's Island. He was supposed to play Gilligan. But he turned it down to be in this show. So obviously that probably wasn't the best choice because Gilligan's Island had much more success. But um, something that was interesting is the 2002 TV Guide said that it was the second worst show that had aired at that time. And a lot of people thought it was just outrageously weird and they didn't really like it. So it got canceled really quickly. I mean, in your mind, like, why do you think if there was so many other weird ideas going on, you know, from an outsider's perspective, because obviously we weren't around, this was in the 60s, why do you think it didn't do so hot? Well, I mean... I think just for the simple fact that it was a person's mother reincarnated into a car. I think just simply put that people weren't that open-minded at the time, you know, and it would have been different if had it been released during the seventies. Cause then that's when you had a lot of crazy shows that came out. And then just to me, what, when you were talking about that, it kind of reminds me of Knight Rider but except for Kit is not a person reincarnated. It's just an intelligent car. Um, And then, like, I think had that show waited possibly to come out in the 70s, it would have done a lot better because then you have a lot of weird shows that came out during that time. And a lot of the stuff that really pushed the, like, the science thing. Because, like, you know, you had the whole... Then you had, like, silly shows, like, about with aliens or whatever, like, with Mick and Morty. Not Mick and Morty, my bad. Uh, Mark and Mindy, <laughs> the Robin Williams show, and things of that nature. So I think it's just one of those things. It probably was ahead of its time. I've not heard of that show before, and I've not seen clips. But it, I think maybe that's probably what it was. It was just poor timing. Yeah, I think, too, maybe had they just did it as a talking car, like you said, maybe that would have been better. Just a sassy female car. Yeah, rather than actually making it his mother. Um, Another one that I found really interesting, because I didn't know about this beforehand, was Cop Rock. And basically, it was a police drama that was portrayed as a musical. And it was on TV. So you had very dark humor and these, you know police deep drama stories but then you have cops that are singing and dancing and once again tv guide ranked this one as number eight on the 50 worst tv shows of all time it only lasted four months with only 11 episodes so i mean this one is definitely interesting because it's a drama cop musical so what do you think about that I think that is a very interesting concept right there. I've never heard or would have thought about something like that, but I can imagine it now. Like a cop singing about 
Oh, this little girl died because of a drunk driver. That would be pretty awesome to see, to be honest. I don't think it works well as a TV show, but I mean, who knows? I mean, there, there's been some stupid stuff put out there revolving about cops and stuff like Reno 911. That was another show I couldn't stand, but somehow it was on TV for such a long time. But once again, I think it's one of those deals where maybe it wasn't the smartest idea, but it probably would have gotten a lot better steam had it been done at a different time. Yeah, I think, I mean, so this one was a little more recently. It was in, it was in the eighties. Okay. But still, I think their issue is they weren't marketing it as a comedy. They wanted it as a drama. Okay. So I think with the added music and the dancing and all, had you done it as a comedy and kind of, you know, satire, maybe you would have done better. But I think when you're dealing with heavy issues, like you said, like murders and, you know, suicide, stuff like that, and then singing about it, people find that offensive, I think. Probably, yeah. You're making a situation not as, you know, serious as it should be. Uh, I really think, too, like even talking back with the the show you were talking about with the car, um, a lot of comedy was like ahead of its time back then. I mean, to me, especially now when you hear a lot of comics, they talk about just personal stories. There's nothing really like that makes you believe like, oh, my gosh, like that is just wild. Uh, I Because and and I think that's mainly because you know, people were ahead of their time back then, and a lot of people who do stuff now are like refer to things from back then, like oh, those crazy things that they saw on TV. That of course, that people our age really don't know about. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think too. I mean, at least for the my mother, the car. Thankfully, that didn't really ruin his career. Um, but he did end up just going back to stand-up comedy because that's where he originally had started. Um, moving on, and this is still kind of related to shows, um, but we're going to take it to music too, is the Jimi Hendrix Monkeys Tour. So for those of you that don't know, we're going to give some backstory. So the Monkeys is a really popular group from the 60s, 70s, and they're even still like touring now. But isn't there like just one member alive though? No, there's there's three. Now? Yeah, there's three, but only two of them tour because one of them's kind of fickle about wanting to tour with the other two. No, I'm talking about like right now, right now. Yeah, right now, right now. I thought there was only one guy alive. No, only one died. Davy Jones. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're probably thinking of the Beatles. Only two of those remain. Oh yeah, but no one cares about Ringo though. Exactly. But so going back, um, a lot of people actually think that the monkeys were based on the Beatles, but the screenwriters and the people that came up with the show idea, they actually had this idea in 1962, which was before the Beatles came on. They came on Ed Sullivan's show in 64, and that's the whole Beatlemania in America. So 
In 62, they came up with this, couldn't sell the idea. They finally sold it again in 64. And what helped them was the Beatles because they just released their movie, A Hard Day's Night. And basically, that movie is just about, you know, the four boys having these random adventures, running around, driving their manager crazy right before they're supposed to go have a concert. And so this really helped them capitalize on the whole boy band thing. Because you had a lot of boy bands during this time. You had the Beach Boys, Paul Revere and the Raiders, um, obviously the Beatles, and then now the Monkees. Now, there's already a lot of controversy around the Monkees because originally they wanted to get an actual folk group that was already a band. Because the whole show is about this rock band and their crazy adventures, and they all live in one house. Sounds like the Spice Girls. The movie they made. Back. Yeah. And so they ended up not finding a folk band that they liked. So they just had auditions and got people to play the different roles. Now, some of them had musical um, capabilities. Like some of them could play the guitar. Uh, Davy Jones could play the drums and so forth. But the controversy was that they didn't let them play their music in the beginning because they said, you know, no, you're just actors that are playing a band on TV. Well, the fans went crazy with this and they loved them that they actually started touring. And so that's where this tour starts to happen. The Jimi Hendrix Monkeys Tour. So they were really taken off in the late 60s and they were selling out these venues. Well, Jimi Hendrix was starting to be an up-and-coming musician. And his manager thought, let's capitalize on their success. And if you can be the opening act for them, that'll give you a lot of exposure. Sounds like a smart idea for anybody wanting well, to start especially off. Especially an African-American male in the 60s. Right, yeah. And they figured too, okay, Jimmy does rock. The Monkees are a rock group, so it should work. Well, Jimi Hendrix actually ended up quitting the tour after seven shows because he got so frustrated that every time he was trying to sing songs like Purple Haze or any of his other set, they just kept screaming, we want Davey. And these girls, they didn't care about Jimi Hendrix. Because I would say, as you find out later, his style obviously didn't match with theirs. They were more of that teen rock. And I would say he's more of just rock. But, I mean, what do you, what do you think about that whole... I mean, it's kind of interesting because you have these two iconic groups and they're actually merged for a little bit. Well, like how you just said, the whole thing where I agree, they don't met, their both styles do not match at all. Um, I recently listened to the Monkees not too long ago, just because like when you were saying before how they were just meant to be a TV show act, they weren't supposed to be serious. I was quite surprised that they were actually as good as they were. I mean, I thought the songs would be would be a lot worse, but it was kind of more enjoyable. I mean, like it's funny because you talk about the comparison between people made with them and the Beatles, and I think I've enjoyed listening to more Monkey songs than I did the Beatles, because especially when they started doing the whole thing, experimenting with drugs. Um, 
but getting back to the point, yeah, um, uh, Jimi Hendrix was a different style of artist. And even whenever he passed away, I mean, he never really reached his full potential of what he could have been, you know? So, I mean, I don't blame him that he wanted, that he went off and did his own thing because obviously, as anyone could say, like, you don't ever want to sell out. Yeah, it's a easy way to get paid or whatever. But at the end of the day, you don't want to compromise who you are as an artist because, you know, you want to get famous through a certain avenue. And then, you know, obviously he didn't want to be associated with that after that venture was over. But, yeah. I think, too, um, like you said, this shows kind of, I feel like, what a true musician is in the sense that if you don't feel like you're growing or going the path you want, then even if it might be detrimental, you step aside. In the sense that, um, you know, even with the Beatles, their reason for stopping, for stop touring was they said they got tired of people were screaming so loud that they could be playing all the wrong notes and they wouldn't know. Because that was back before you had the inner ear monitors. And so I think, you know, that's interesting too, is like, even with them, they could have kept going and going, but for what? Because to them, it was about the music. Um, another thing to add about this that I think is kind of interesting is there's actually been an ongoing debate and argument because they don't want to put them in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they said because it was a group that started for a TV show versus a TV show based on a group that these weren't real musicians and that's why they shouldn't. Well, I mean, you bring up a real interesting point right there. And I'm going to talk about this group later on. Like how you said, a lot of these guys, they were all actors. And that became like a group and actually released albums. Uh, another group that a lot of people give a lot of crap to today is a group of called Tenacious D, uh, Jack Black and uh, Kyle Gass. You know, they're parody artists basically, but they really they make music songs and they go on tours. And yet, like I remember, it wasn't too long ago that they won uh, album of the year, and a lot of people were offended by that because they're like. We're over here. We've been doing this for such a long time. They're quote unquote noobs that don't make real music, and yet somehow they're more they're better than us. So I mean, and I don't know, like, cause I have mixed feelings about that too. I mean, listening to the monkeys now, and the way the Rock Hall of Fame is, it's like there's people I don't think that who are in the uh, Hall of Fame that should be in there, but they are. So, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's good to recognize people who did inspire um, future generations. That's how I see it. Not necessarily, oh, uh, if you're if you were rock and roll enough or you were cool or you had enough cool, like stories or whatever. It's about the impact that you made on that generation, you know? And let's be honest, the monkeys, they are that they do sell out. They do put merchandise out there and it doesn't sit on shelves. It goes, it disappears. So the, the, even till today, they, when they go on tour, they do pretty darn well. 
I mean, if if they didn't draw, then yes, you can have all the rights to say all that. But if you're still making money, even at this age, even with all these bands that still tour to today, like Aerosmith and Def Lap and all that, they're still making money. You know, obviously they they're important. People still want them. Yeah, and I think that's interesting what you add about um, the impact they have on society because, I mean, they had such an impact that Star Trek based one of their characters on them. So Chekhov, the reason he had the weird straight hair because, you know, most Russians, that actually wasn't how they, their style was. But they styled him after Davy Jones because Gene Roddenberry saw how popular the monkeys were. And that was his way to draw the younger female crowd into this sci-fi show that was more, probably more of a male demographic. So like you said, they did have a big impact. Um, If you want to go further, they even had their own little movie flop with the movie Head. So this movie was the only one they released that was actually scripted. You know, they have tour movies. But what's interesting about this one is it came out as rated R. So all of their fans that would have been, you know, young teenagers or even younger than that, all these girls, they wouldn't have been able to see it because of the rating. And if you go back and watch it, it's interesting because it should not have been rated R, not even PG-13. Basically, what it is is it's this weird sort of... I mean, none of it is really cohesive. It's a montage of them in these random situations. So, for instance, in one of them, they're stuck in a giant vacuum. And then in another, Mickey's in the desert and there's a random Coke machine. So it's just all these very zany adventures and things going on that they said it was their commentary on what people were doing to rock groups. And how, you know, people were trying to cookie cut these rock groups and make them be a certain way. But I think the whole R rating was very interesting. And that's why the film didn't do well at all. So, I mean. Maybe because they probably thought it was psychedelic or something. Yeah. And it definitely was because it came out very late 60s, early 70s. So you did have the very, I mean, watching it, yes, you get vibes of, you know, the whole drugs thing. But interesting enough, they didn't do all of that. So they still had their clean image. But with this R rating, it it just made that movie tank. And that's another thing we're going to talk about earlier as well. I'm glad you brought that up. It's kind of funny how these little groups who I'm not downplaying the monkey's popularity, but like these groups are not necessarily huge household names. but they come out with a movie or something and it kind of kills their credibility credibility and their popularity within like their demographic. And like you said, like it to me, when you said that a group that's basically like a kid's band is being all released movie. That's our, you know, a lot of the parents who buy their kids, this stuff and they see that, at, during that time, they probably like, oh, well, I'm not no longer buying you this stuff because look what they're putting out there, you know? And yeah, to me, that's kind of messed up. I think that's probably one of those things as well 
like how you just said, like maybe they were exposing the the industry, how the man, quote unquote, was trying to control them. And, and the man in that situation saw that they were releasing a film of that nature and was like, you know what? If they're going to try to mess with us and expose us, well, we'll show them. And they probably was like, because there's a lot of stuff out there. And I just want to use this as a quick example. Uh, Dave Chappelle released a new comedy video on that's on Netflix called Sticks and Stones. You go on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 0% rating. That this was like horrible, unwatchable. It was a load of crap. No one support Dave Chappelle. It's just that bad. People went over there. They didn't care what Rotten Tomatoes had to say. And they watched it. And now it has a 98% rating. So you tell me that like big people, you know, who are in charge, who, who basically can control an audience, tell them this is worth watching, this isn't, blah, blah, blah. And you tell me that they're not trying to control what people watch, you know, or the media, you know, because they don't like a certain individual. And I think at that time, this is probably something that was happening. Yeah, that's a very good point you bring up because they actually did have that sort of debate. Um, one of the managers at the time, Brian Epstein, he wanted them not to play any of the music on the tracks because, so like I said, a few of them actually knew how to play instruments. Some of them learned while being on the show how to play because if we're going to play a rock group, let's play music. Well, he didn't like the fact that they wanted to start playing on the albums. They wanted to be the ones playing the instruments and not just doing the voices. So they did have a, a sort of falling out with him ended up getting him fired and that second series their second season of the show that's when they were able to be I guess you could say more creative and they did play their own music and whatnot so yeah it could have been a political move whether or not necessarily on his point on other people that liked him and maybe that's what got them that rating um moving forward I want to go into um after this break, we're going to have talk about a duo group that had a lot of success and then just tragically fell. Ghost hunting, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, cosplay. Come out to the Will Rogers Memorial Center September 14th and 15th for the first spooky spectacle. Enjoy wanding classes, UFO talk, and see some of your favorite spooky celebrities, such as Dale Midcalf from Pet Cemetery and Paul T. Taylor, Pinhead, from Hellraiser Judgment. $10 gets you in the door. For more info, visit SpookySpectacle.com. And we're back to the finer arts. I'm Kitty, and I have my co-host, Cisco Kids. And right now, we are talking about flops. So, you just heard Millie Vanilli's song, and that was Girl, You Know It's True. Well, this was a German R&B duo. And they were a big deal. They got super popular within like a year of being released. And everybody loved them. The girls went crazy for them. Well, they had a secret. After they won the Grammy for the new artist, or best new artist, it was found out that they were lip syncing this whole time. So what you heard was not actually 
what people knew as the lead singers. So the the two people that ran the group or were, you know, what people thought were the lead singers was Fab Morvan and Rob Pilich, Pilatus. Well, these were two Germans that they could barely speak English. And so a lot of people thought it was interesting how they were able to sing so well, yet they could barely speak English. Well, after they won the Grammy, it was found out that they actually had other people singing for them. And they ended up giving the Grammy back. Um, and there's a lot of controversy with this because some people thought, you know, how awful it was that they tricked everybody. But then they came out in an interview and they were saying that, you know, they were tricked, that they were young. They had just come to America and they were wanting the fame that a lot of people do. So they just quickly signed a contract that they couldn't really read because it was in English. And that they later found out the contract said they were just going to be the face of this duo. They were they had to lip sync and they wouldn't be able to sing any of their own music. And this frustrated them. And they uh, with all the backlash they received, they even ended up telling people like this was frustrating because they were actual singers. Well, after this whole issue where people found out they were fake. There was a new album that was released, and it was called The Real Millie Vanilli. And basically, it was all the singers that played their voices. And this album obviously didn't do that well because people, it kind of left a bad taste in their mouth. And then that was in 91. Well, then in 97 and 98, they came out, the original two, with an album called Back and Attack. And it was them actually singing for real. But it didn't do that well. And there was just, after that, it was never the same. So, I mean, what do you think about all this? Well, with Millie Vanilli, like, I just know of them, not necessarily their music, even though this was pretty interesting, even though it wasn't them. I know of them from all the celebrities that I've met throughout my life that would talk about how fake they were. A lot of people who did security, i.e., uh, people like Mark Wahlberg, you know, when he was younger, he said like, we'd, I, I, we was hanging out with these guys in the back and like when the, he would hear them talk, they wouldn't even understand what they were saying. It's like, and another, uh, person I know, uh, a wrestler other than the name of Vampiro would say the same thing. He's like, Oh, this super hot popular band that had the sickest music. But whenever you go in the back to hang out with them, these dudes did not speak English at all. So it's like, how the heck? And when they did try to speak English, it was super broken and terrible. So like, how did they pull it off that when they're on stage, they were perfect? And I think even back then, like some of the guys who are popular now who heard this uh, kind of already knew, but they just had to keep their mouth shut if they wanted to have a job. Um, that kind of sucks though for them that that happened and they never really were able to like reclaim that because I mean even that song that we just listened to wasn't that bad. So even the actual people who sung that, maybe they they don't they don't look the best or anything like that, but I mean that was pretty good for its time. So I think fans would have wanted to hear that, you know. I wouldn't call myself the real Billy uh, the real 
Then, ugh. Well, however you say it. Milly Vanilla. There you go. That's a tongue twister in itself for me right now. But, uh, I mean, I think that people would have will like to have continued to hear that. As far as the actual duo themselves, them not really finding success. I mean, I mean, what did you expect? I mean, not even Arnold when he first started making films, like some of his early work, I will never forget. Uh, his first film called Hercules in New York. His first film was terrible. Like it literally, like if you ever seen wooden acting before, that was wooden acting at its finest. It looked like he was just reciting the lines and he was struggling so bad. And the uh, people who are co-hosting in this film with him were like, just irking the the whole time. It was just such a horrible movie. But I mean, when did the song come out in the eighties, right? Uh, it actually came out the very end, so eighty nine, and then they won the Grammy in ninety. So, so if you think about it, a lot of stuff like that, especially with foreign people, like artists or actors or whatever, was huge in the eighties. You know, so I mean, I'm not surprised that this happened because that was like a thing. And, but, you know, it it just sucks overall, I guess. Yeah, I think it's definitely unfortunate for both because, for both sides, in the sense that, you know, since they came out that they were actual singers, they got screwed over because people already had a bad image of them. And then for the, their real voices, for them to come out and try to do an album, obviously it wasn't going to be recepted well because... You had people that were very fond of these guys. And I think, too, it's interesting that real quick people started to catch on that something was up because at one of their concerts, it was July 21st, 1989, and it was a performance on MTV. Well, they were singing that song, Girl, You Know It's True, and it started skipping. And that you know they just sort of panicked and just kind of ran off stage so that's when people started really suspecting something was up as well and i think it's unfortunate for them because yes you know you have two young people that want fame and you could see how they could easily fall into that trap of signing a contract without knowing what it says and then it kind of well it did ruin their career and they never were able to come back from that Eventually, um, one of the members even ended up committing suicide because they just said, you know, the two years that they were doing music and in the limelight, that it was just a nightmare for them because of all this backlash. So I think it's interesting, especially, too, because this was the early 90s. I think the reason that the Real Voices didn't try to do anything on their own was because this was when in music you started transitioning to you got to have the look. You know, this wasn't the 60s, 70s where some little nerdy singer like John Denver could get on there, sing his songs, and people would like him. Like now you had to dance, you know, because you were coming from the Michael Jackson era. So you got to dance. You got to be able to sing, but you also have to look good. And so they had the moves, they had the looks. But when people found out that wasn't their voices, that's what ruined it for them. You know, maybe had they been released more in the 80s, maybe they would have done well. But at the same time, I mean, 
you saw how quickly people found out that they were lip singing. And I think that's a huge problem even today with a lot of these one-hit wonders where, I mean, they taste that success and, like, the spotlight comes and goes super fast where they really never had a time to really, like, um, to really let that set in. And for, for them to be so hot and have that taken away from them. I was going to say that, like, a lot of these guys end up killing themselves, which is sad. Because, like, then they don't know what to do with themselves. And obviously, like you just said, like, uh, they're not really doing anything. Well, the one single member isn't doing anything anymore. Which is, you know, sad, you know. But, I mean, at, at that point, I think that's where you kind of need to figure out how to reinvent yourself. Um, I've not looked for these guys before because, like, this is kind of new. They're kind of new to me. I know the name, but not enough for me to go do research. But... I mean, that should be something where the the one single member can go out and talk about his experience, you know, although he's not going to really make money um, doing music or whatever or appearances, but at least getting his story out there and talking about his experiences with his his uh, partner or whatever, that, that could be useful, you know, and eventually, who knows, one day somebody might take his story and make it into like a TV movie or something. I mean, just about everything gets made like on like the lesser known networks, you know? So, and especially since they were popular in the eighties, that's a huge thing right now where a lot of the, these eighties celebrities from the eighties are having their stories told. So I think if whomever uh, that person's name is should uh, get on that. Yeah, I think uh, something else that was more interesting and probably didn't help them was that, um, and this is a big controversy, in a 1990 issue of Time magazine, the one of the members, Rob Pilatus, he claimed that they were the new Elvis. And he was reasoning that they had more success um, and they were more talented musically than Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, and Mick Jagger. Well, you know, it came out in 2017 with the other member, the one uh, that still is alive. And he said that his partner never said those words and it was taken out of context. And that this was likely due to him not really understanding English. That is definitely plausible. But I think, you know, what happened in combination with you making those claims is going to kill it for a lot of people because, you know, especially when you're claiming you have all this musical talent and then people find out you were lip syncing, whether or not you can actually sing. I think that's what also did them in. Um, This next album and person is very interesting. So a lot of you may know William Shatner from Star Trek. He played Captain Kirk. Well, he also came out with an album, and it was a musical album. And basically, I mean, you you have to look up this album. It's very interesting and very trippy. But he sings a lot of, I say sings very loosely. He does a lot of covers of very popular songs, so like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. He does Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. He does Rocket Man. All of these songs. 
but he doesn't actually sing them. It's spoken style. And it's very comical because he's very dramatic about it. And his first album, Transformed Man, apparently this was actually intentional. And he was comparing the pop songs with Shakespeare. And that's why he did it in this dramatic style of reading. But the Music Choice Poll actually voted his cover of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds as one of the worst Beatles cover ever. And there's even been a lot of parodies of the way he did this music. And, you know, they even had a Simpsons episode making fun of the way he did this album. Later, you also have Leonard Nimoy, who actually sang and did a musical album too. So I think it's interesting, like how we were talking earlier with actors getting into writing books or other areas. You have these actors that are trying to get into music. Um, More specifically, I think it's funny how William Shatner, whether or not he can actually sing, decided to do this sort of interpretive reading with his music. So, I mean, how do you take that? Well, I mean, think about it. William Shatner was hot in, in the sense that, like, the man can do anything and make money. And I've heard a lot of stories uh, uh, about uh, Shatner, especially from uh, George Takai. He would tell stories about whenever Shatner quit uh, or whenever they had that, when Star Trek was over, um, George Takai did good and like staying away. He didn't want to do everything because, you know, he kind of wanted to, his name to have value. But I think a lot of uh, Shatner's problems came because he's been divorced so many times. So uh, I remember George Takai telling the story about how he was doing a convention in Colorado. And it was this small little town, but when he got there, and he was watching TV, like William Shatner had done commercials for like a mom and pop used furniture store. And he, he, I remember him saying something along the lines that, Oh my gosh, I can't believe he's actually doing this. Like he's really sunk that low where he like, they, you know, they probably didn't pay him barely anything. And yet now he's all over like public TV over here. So, like, I understand, like, people just wanted to make money as much as they can, if they can. Um, whenever you say that, the, the number one person who pops into my head is David, David Hasselhoff and his popularity of his singing career in Germany. I've listened to a couple of the, his songs, and oh my gosh, they're horrible. I don't know what exactly it is that the Germans find so appealing about his music. I do not know, but hey, whatever floats your boat. Yeah, I think definitely it's funny because he did have all this fame. I mean, you had all this merchandise, costumes for the show already, Star Trek, but also specifically for him. You know, he was the Mr. Cute guy. And then now, whether or not it's out of necessity, he is doing everything. I mean, he's even, I think it's uh, the price line that he's doing commercials for them now, too. And I know that that's why there was also a little debate 
when the new Star Treks came out because they brought Leonard Nimoy back into those new movies. And there was a lot of debate about bringing Shatner, you know, because some people thought, oh, well, he's been overexposed. And some people just thought, no, he's not going to do good at it. So I think that was interesting. And, I mean, you could say this is less about him trying to be serious about getting a music career. And more, I think he wanted to, this was his way of making art. Not necessarily music, but, you know, with his interpretive readings of these very popular songs at the time. I think that was his way of, you know, creating this new sort of art. And that's how he saw it versus I don't think he thought he was going to get to be the next, you know, number one singer. And I think also a lot of people, artists, like like to dabble in other things, you know. And it like, not like how you just said, it's not necessarily that you plan on being the next big thing and whatever it is that you're dabbling in. But, you know, just like another example, I guess, would be with, um, what's his name? Oh, his name escapes me right now. Uh, the guy from Jurassic Park. Uh... Jeff Goldblum. There you go. Um, with him and his little orchestra right now. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's not the greatest thing, but people enjoy listening to him, and they all go spend the money to go watch his shows. It's just a hobby. And just, like, for me, like, okay, the way I see it is you're not going to see these people walk in the streets in your neighbor regular neighborhood, but the fact is, that like in Jeff Goldblum's case, the fact that he's touring the U.S. with his little group, and you maybe you won't see him where he's from in California, but if he comes to your town, you it's like you're there, like passing him up on on the street, and he's right there in front of you doing something that he loves to do. So you're sharing that moment with him, you know. So I mean, I think stuff like that's kind of cool. Yeah. If done correctly, you know. Yeah, I think like you said, it's more of these, I would say, artists that are finding different avenues they want to explore. You know, and that's natural. I think, too, especially like in Will Shatner's case, he had the success of being a hit star, a hit lead. So I think for him, it's like, okay, maybe instead of continuing with TV, I mean, he did. He did some of Twilight Zone and some of that stuff. But I think instead of that focus, he was like, what else is out there? So kind of playing off that as well, I wanted to go into a the same subject since we started talking about William Shatner. And my thing is, and this is something I really find important to me because I love this kind of music. It makes me happy. It's parody music. And the biggest question is, is that is can parody music be considered real music that is something that's argued a lot today so like what are your thoughts about it um i mean this is very controversial especially you know being a musician i think it's it's a hard line in the sense that you there i would say these parodies can be music can be real music but i think the interesting part is how people do it I mean, you have so many different legal obstacles they have to overcome to be able to produce these. But also in the sense of, 
you have some people that do something as simple as just changing the lyrics. And then you have some that they change the lyrics and the style, but, you know, they keep the same backbone of the music. And I think that's what makes it interesting in the sense of, you know, anybody can change lyrics to a hit song and then have another hit song. They're using someone else's music. So I think, you know, when once you get into the whole changing the style but keeping the backbone, I think that's what really makes a parody artist a bit more successful, I would say. So, like, I agree with you on a lot of those points. But one of my problems that I have with parody music is, one, a lot of the times, like, the if you're going to keep the same music, when you change those lyrics, it obviously has to follow to that same tune. And not necessarily just following the same tune, but it needs to make somewhat of sense and it needs to flow and sound good. And like the end goal of the parody song, in my opinion, is to make you laugh. And a lot of times I feel like a lot of these people who do that like kind of miss the mark. They're like, oh yeah, it's this song that you know, but it's less, like not as good. And it's like, and to me, it's like, I understand you, you went out of your way. You asked the recording artist, Hey, like I'm so-and-so I would like to do a parody of your song. Or a lot of times, a lot of people, especially on YouTube do not do that. They just like put it out there and they just make sure it's this song, but it's a parody. And obviously they're getting paid for it through YouTube or whatever. And that's my thing is like with to to me the shelf life of somebody who does parody songs isn't that long and that kind of makes me sad in the sense that i love this kind of music but i mean how much steam can a group really have um one of my big my the the my first example yet yeah, and probably the biggest one everyone knows is weird al yankovic and you know, he's been doing this for such a long time. Uh, one of his first songs that he did that kind of got him notor- notoriety is another one, Rides the Bus, i.e. a parody of Queen's song. And yeah, he played the whole song on an accordion, so you can't say, ooh, it's the same. But, you know, you could tell it was, and he kind of sped through his singing and I mean, it, in my opinion, that's not really a good song. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's what really got him going. But I mean, he was really hot for a while when he started off in the 80s and he kind of went away and he's had singles here and there and he's tours and everything. But my thing is like, if you what you do, if every single song that you do is a parody of a, of a legitimate song, I think that not necessarily that you should basically be writing hits all the time, but it needs to be something that it was worth you going through all the effort of doing that. And like, I love Weird Al, but like there's, I think I like maybe 10% of the songs he's made. A lot of them are just very questionable. And I'm like, yeah, why did you write that? Because, like, he's very much, like, he appeals to, I want to say, like, a younger audience, you know? And, like, some of the songs are, like, can be adult-themed. And, yeah, so it's kind of weird. 
and lead it into the next group, um, another well-known group, especially today, is the Lonely Island. You know, they started off Andy Samberg doing skits, uh, music shorts on SNL, and obviously, uh, if you know, if you don't know anything about Lonely Island, um, they were actually they used to assist Jimmy Fallon. Was it Jimmy Fallon or? Uh, I think it was Jimmy Fallon or uh, some other guy who does uh, late night TV. And uh, there were his assistants, and they're the ones that got them, that somebody vouched for them saying they were hilarious. And uh, they basically, from that word of mouth, is what got them their auditions with uh, SNL. But Andy was the only one that was chosen to do it. And. So yeah, like I remember uh, back in 2008 slash nine when they were really picking up a lot of steam, their parody albums were like doing well. And then they kind of died down a little bit. And then right before the movie Popstar was released, which was like a goof on Justin Bieber's movie that he did, um, came out. They, they kind of died down big time after that because I think in the movie they talked about a lot of controversial things. And, um, yeah, and then, like, obviously the movie did not do well at all in the theaters. I don't think it was in there for a long time. And so, yeah, it was kind of bad. Um, I enjoyed it still because I could, knowing and following them for such a long time, I could see what they were trying to portray, but... I guess to the masses, they didn't really reach that. And I feel by the time they did their, their movie, like they were kind of already on that downhill already. And obviously like Andy was doing it, like was about to do it, the show Brooklyn nine, nine and all of that. So yeah, I mean, that was kind of sad to see. And I don't think they're really doing anything now. They have shows here and there, but I mean, they're i don't think they're in the same popularity as they once were and hopefully they they come up with something new here soon because i think when once you get to the level that you're doing songs like with rihanna and michael bolton and everyone and you know you had in the movie you know they had usher in there i think you there's something there people you you good enough to agree to do whatever this project is with you so, I don't know. Hopefully, there's a comeback sometime in the future. Um, and then we talked about this uh, group uh, earlier: Tenacious D, Michael Gas, you know, Kyle Gas, and Jack Black. Um, they I don't remember when that movie came out, but Tenacious D and The Pick of Destiny, which has now become more of a cult classic nowadays. Um, it came out, all obviously, did not do too well. They didn't even make back the money they spent on that film. And I like when you watch interviews with Jack Black and Kyle Gass, they are they act like they kind of don't understand why because uh, prior to the movie, like they were they were known that they were a group, but they weren't to that same level. And after the film was released, they um were kind of got more notoriety and people knew more about this band that was actual legit and not just for a movie. 
And I mean, the if you watch the movie, like a lot of the songs are very weird. And like I would kind of compare them how you would say with like the Beatles songs, they just don't make any sense. And if you hear Kyle and Jack talk about like they smoked a lot of weed when they made this movie and like kind of goes to along the lines with uh uh giant john c o'reilly when he did the parody movie walk hard like which was the a parody of uh walking walk the line with johnny cash and so yeah so what, what do you think about all of this stuff yeah i think you know something that came to mind when you were talking about all these groups is i think the ones that do the best are the ones that realize you're not you're not focused on necessarily making music like new songs but rather these are i would say sketches you know and like comedy pieces so i think something that kind of helped weird al is when he had those videos and they really brought his parodies to life you know and i think that's kind of what helps with that um, when you brought up the John C. Riley movie and um, Walk Hard, I mean, that soundtrack is great. But I think, too, because he's not parroting actual songs rather than parroting the styles. And I think that's what makes it great is, you know, you have that sort of mimicry of popular hits without actually just relying on their music, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. And, like, to kind of cap that all off, it's, like like I said before, I think it's just hard for them to keep everything fresh and relevant. Because, like, nowadays, like, I like to write parody songs, but a lot of the songs that I like to parody are older songs from, like, the 80s and 90s. And because I, the only reason why I do that, because not only are you, like, it's more of a challenge, but you're in a way when you do that, you're like reintroducing that song that people may have forgotten back then to today's generation. Versus doing like songs now, like you see a lot of people on YouTube do it and make fun of today's artists. And like, and that's really easy to do because a lot of these artists, their life's out there on social media. So it's easy to make fun of them for the things that they do. One of those that really stand out to me is uh, when Hotline Hotline Bling uh, came out with a, that Drake song, and people made fun of it. You had the uh, hot, uh, like the you had Fat Drake parody that song, and then some other guy who who's big into today like doing parodies on of today's music on YouTube. I can't think of his name. And that became a whole dispute between those two artists. And I use that term loosely as well because this guy that does it, who's been doing it for such a long time, I don't think he's that great. And But they were talking about who whose was better. I'm like, well, neither of you guys would have had this song if it wasn't for Drake and the fact that he decided to dance in a video when he knew very well he couldn't dance. So, I mean, there's that. And... Yeah. So, and then, like, kind of going back, like I was saying, that uh, when you go out of your way to make a parody song, and if it's not your own, like you're making, if you're 
using a, an existing song. If you got permission to do it, then actually make it good. Because I remember, like, if you ever watch videos of Weird Al, he'll say a lot of stuff like, Michael Jackson was very kind and let him use, like do a lot of parodies of his songs. There were some that he wouldn't. Um, he always wanted to do a Prince song, but Prince was never interested. And other people of that nature. If you're using these extremely popular artist songs, I would think that once you get that permission, you want to make sure that that's the best thing you've ever done. And the in one case, an example, I mean, Coolio, what is his song that he's only known for, really? Gangsters in Paradise, right? Weird Al did Amish Paradise. And Amish Paradise is one of his more popular songs. But because that song is so popular, that song has kept Coolio relevant for such a long time. Why he's still touring and doing all his stuff. So, I mean, there's a give and take on that. So that's really all I have to say on that. I think it's important how you add you added that, you know, making parodies of songs from back then versus current. Because I think that's an issue when people make parodies of current songs is one, you don't know what's truly a hit till kind of after it's time has passed. And as well, working with older songs, like you said, they might have fallen out of people's minds at the forefront and so you're able to bring it back in a new light whereas a current song you already have like people have it very relevant so then for you it's it's more of a side-by-side comparison which i feel like could bring more scrutiny to your parody so okay we're gonna take a quick short break and then we'll come back and wrap up the show Uh, you're listening to the finer arts here on utaradio.com And that's all we have for the finer arts today. Come back next week when me, Kitty, and Cisco Kids will talk more about the finer arts, i.e. movies, musicals, music, books, TV, everything, and more. On utaradio.com. Radio, utaradio.com.